Episode 10 of ICO 41, Weekly In-Depth Analysis of Initial Coin Offerings. podcast focuses deeply on a single ICO each week and presumes some knowledge of the basics of blockchain technology. What's a little different about this podcast is that we read the white papers, we investigate the background of the team, and if we can, we spend some time communicating directly with the team in question, and then we report to you in detail. As always, this podcast is not intended as investment advice nor as information to lead to any particular action whatsoever. Our aim is to inform, not to suggest And thanks especially for tuning in on this little milestone for us, the 10th episode. And here's to many, many more, because honestly, we're having too much fun with this to stop now. In this week's episode, we are again going to focus on a highly technical ICO, which has some special fascination for me because it seeks to address a number of issues that IT people like myself at one time faced when managing things like servers and networks. But also, which very much affects all users of the internet. Now, as in the custom with this podcast, we're going to go down a slightly technical path with a little bit of background before we can begin to discuss the ICO itself. And I hope that you'll find this little journey we're going to take interesting. So last October, in fact, to be precise, uh, October 21st, 2016, a very large part of the internet appeared to just go away completely dark for a few hours in the morning and then a few hours again later in the day. And what I mean by that is that almost 70 sites were unavailable. Now, 70 sites doesn't sound like a lot until you realize who these sites were. I'm not talking about my mom and pop website.com. I'm talking about the likes of Amazon, CNN, the New York Times, the Boston Globe, HBO, PayPal, Netflix, Zillow, Yelp, Twitter, Visa. In fact, the entire Swedish government, if you can imagine. So you might ask, how did this happen and why did it happen? Well, there's some definitely interesting things about this one. First of all, this was the largest known DDoS, Distributed Denial of Service Attack, ever known. And what's interesting is that All of those companies, there's almost 70 of them, used one DNS provider named DYN. So DNS, remember, is Domain Name Service, and that's a service that allows you to type something like Amazon.com into your web browser, and then that translates your request to Amazon into a a routable IP address. Most of the listeners in this podcast know what an IP address is. Almost everybody knows what an IP address is now. And what that does is that allows your request to actually make its way accurately and without fail to the servers that Amazon run in order to provide you with the way to buy your latest thing that you need and that will make your life better. Now, this company named DYN is a company that we used to use about 10 years ago as sort of a free little service to change DNS records for our home routers when the IP address changed. 
That was about 10 years ago. They've since grown into a very large company to service very large customers. In fact, they were recently bought by Oracle for something like $600 million. Now, you can go see the list of the companies affected by this very specific attack by visiting our site, ICO41.com, and checking out the corresponding blog post for this podcast, if you're curious. But here's the crazy thing. When it was all said and done, amazingly, it turned out to be pretty much one apparently very angry gamer who was mad at the PlayStation Network. Now, this resulted in the largest distributed denial-of-service attack ever perpetuated, and this person remains anonymous now. So you might even be wondering how this is possible. And in fact, it's very interesting. All this person did was they pretty much installed the Tor web browser, which is this uh, tool that allows your activity to become anonymous through a clever series of obfuscating nodes that make it very difficult to trace backward from whence you came, as it were. And then this anonymous person used the Tor browser to enter what is known as the so-called dark web. Uh, And then they paid about $7,500 to rent the notorious Mirai botnet, M-I-R-A-I botnet, for a few hours. Maybe you're actually wondering what the Mirai botnet is. It's another fascinating story. It turns out that the Mirai botnet consists of at least tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, no way of really knowing precisely, devices used by normal people like you and me in their efforts to use the internet. I'm talking about things like home routers, smart DVD players, closed-circuit television cameras, all these things, this Internet of Things we have, that are just installed by people, except that they don't take the time to change the default password on the device. So the source code for this Mirai malware was released on GitHub, which then allowed thousands and thousands, who knows how many people, to download and use the code not only to launch attacks and start businesses on the dark web to rent out their Mirai-infected networks, but they also, interestingly enough, allowed benign actors to launch competing software to wrestle control of these compromised devices and protect them, or attempt to protect them. So just imagine that we've got hundreds of thousands, I don't know, maybe millions of devices floating around that are compromised in little subunits of armies that can be rented on the dark web for just a little bit of money that could just at any moment just drop what they're doing and go attack. So it's a fascinating story. And uh, if actually, if if you're interested in uh, reading some of the squalid background, again, you can visit ICO41.com and check out the blog post. I've got some links there. Um, On GitHub, there's people who have posted chats from forums where hackers are bragging about their exploits, like the fact that the first scans using Mirai uncovered something like 380,000 new little bots they could have controlled. In any case, this company, DYN, that's the one that was attacked managed to mitigate some of the attack by using what are known as content delivery networks, also known as CDNs, where various parts of their networks were protected by distributed servers. 
serving their content from a variety of other physical locations, not just one place. That's the essence of CDN. But even with all of that protection, those companies, those 6970 companies, still lost millions of dollars and millions of people had no access to those services for hours. And ultimately, the fact remains that most likely what actually stopped this attack is probably because the person renting out the bot army probably couldn't afford to pay more than a few hours for the botnet army. So it's, it's nothing like the fact that those 100,000 devices were all just fixed. And I think it's probably accurate to say that there's little or nothing to stop this from happening again. So the thing to consider is, well, what do we do as a defense since we're not going to be able to fix all the devices on the planet? And then you're probably even wondering at this point, what does all of this have to do with the ICO that we're reviewing this week? Well, if you think about what happened just in that one attack, it's pretty doubtful that this angry gamer intended to take down 70 of the largest companies. It's just that those companies use this one company named DYN for their DNS. So at a fundamental level, any project that seeks to provide distribution of resources beyond just one would work toward mitigating that problem. And also, in case you didn't know, these so-called content delivery network systems, which are in place to protect sites and which are also responsible for the ability for millions of people to use sites like Amazon every day and still have really good performance, those are very expensive services indeed, and there's not a lot of them. So therefore, that too would be very good if the content delivery network platform was distributed and made more accessible to smaller companies. So all of this leads us to this week's ICO, which is... Gladius. Now Gladius, as you know, is the sword that the Roman Empire used primarily. Uh, and the concept here is that the Gladius network will be powered primarily by the Ethereum blockchain. And that Ethereum blockchain will incentivize people who wish to be rewarded by contributing their bandwidth, their computing power, and their disk storage to run a node. Now, what does the node do? Well, the node will provide a variety of services, basically related to what we referred to early as content delivery. You should really understand that content delivery is mainly from a geographic perspective. So what do I mean by that? Let's say you're a fair-sized company, and you've got servers in Los Angeles, you've got servers in New York, Miami, and Chicago. Well, you don't want people in Southern Oregon visiting your site to be waiting the 125 milliseconds or whatever for images and text to be sent to you from the New York server. You would much rather have them using the Los Angeles site, which would probably take about a third of the time. But even more than that, how great would it be if all that static content on your website, like images and video, were actually loaded from Portland, Oregon, for those Oregonian users? Now that's what content delivery networks can do. And that's what Gladius is intending to do using the blockchain to some extent. 
Now, traditionally, content delivery network providers like Akamai, it's one of the most well-known probably, have very high overhead. In fact, myself, I used to work in a very large data center that served as a hosting center for the likes of eBay and Blizzard Entertainment. But it also provided really important routing services and large network pipes, if you will, between major cities. And all of the 15 or so data centers in the company that I worked for at that time, they all had Akamai servers in those data centers. So I can tell you that hosting a bank of servers in a data center, an enterprise-level data center, and consuming a huge amount of bandwidth is not a cheap proposition. And it's for that reason that content providers like Akamai and Cloudflare and others charge a lot of money. So what if instead of expensive servers in large data centers that the content delivery network was actually powered by thousands of regular people like you and I who might stand to make a little bit of money to provide the services that the big companies like Akamai and Cloudflare currently provide? And there's just more of us. The main service, of course, is content delivery, which is the caching and storing of images and videos and things that are large closer to the people who are receiving that content with their web browsers. That provides a tremendous amount of speed for browsing websites. But also included in this service is also protection from denial of service attacks like we discussed earlier. So that's the fundamental concept of what this ICO is about. Let's take a look at the company and the team. Like most of the ICOs that we cover in this podcast, the company itself is very new. Um, the LinkedIn company page shows seven employees that it was started in May of this year. And like most other ICOs, this is really all about the team. Now there's 12 members on this team and it's split about 50-50 between core members and advisors. The core team members are quite young. Now, some of them are actually still in college, but they have some obvious talents. Uh, as an example, I can tell you that the GitHub repositories are full of code that you can download and compile. And as you'll find when we talk about the community response, the core team has benefited from their advisory board, which has been active, and which consists of people who have good experience in advising blockchain projects. And I would say have had quite a bit of success in communicating this blockchain project. The advisory board in this case not only includes experienced marketers and business people, but also technical advisors with some really deep experience in programming on the blockchain, which I think perhaps explains the repositories we see on GitHub, as well as the core team members contributing as well. I personally found the team to be very responsive on Telegram. They answered my questions immediately and in detail and also through an email with the CTO uh, that I'll paraphrase uh, throughout my uh, podcast here. Uh, and then I'll also post it on the blog uh, that goes with this podcast at ICO41.com. Let's talk about the white paper. This particular white paper speaks to me personally on a few levels. One, because I've spent a fair amount of time as a network engineer, and I worked in data centers where we combated things like denial of service tax relatively frequently. And because one of the companies that I have worked for has used and paid good money for content delivery services. And so I understand the problems that they're trying to solve with this white paper and with this project. 
And I feel, as I read the white paper a couple of times, that they did a good job in describing those problems to people who may not fully understand the need and the components of a content delivery network. And I also feel like they did a good job of laying out the business case. And we'll discuss that a little bit later when we talk about business viability. Now, there was a little bit of high-flown rhetoric that was uh, kind of amusing, particularly the part about the eight seconds of attention span, which if you've been reading articles online, you'll find there's a whole bunch of discussion on the fact that human beings now have eight seconds of attention. But uh, big controversy back and forth on that one, but still pretty entertaining. The point, though, that I think that they were driving at is that it's, it's just true that no one these days is going to sit and watch a web page being loaded. If that page isn't up instantly, those visitors are gone. And that's borne out by anybody who has looked at a web blog in the last five years even. I can attest to this myself. At one point, I had some bad JavaScript on a website a long time ago. It was grabbing the wrong versions of some image files, actually the larger versions. In fact, I shouldn't even have the files on the website to begin with. But as soon as we fixed the script to pull the right files, traffic increased by like a thousand percent overnight. So it's absolutely true that caching and that uh, performance are big drivers when it comes to consumers consuming your service that is on the web. Now, if some of you are reading the white paper, I just have a little bit of additional information that was communicated to me by the CTO, which wasn't in the white paper, but I'll mention it here. An example is that the blockchain is going to be a public blockchain. Uh, it'll mainly contain things like encrypted IP address information, bandwidth ability, uptime, blacklists of malicious hosts, uh, reputation scores for the various actors on the network, uh, pricing, um, the features of pools, of pools of, of nodes that are going to be uh, delivering these services, and some client data. It's important to understand that you know the service itself, the images, the cached information is not going to be laid on the blockchain. Of course, that's would be prohibitively expensive and not at all scalable. And of course, that's just an, it's not explicitly stated in the white paper, but naturally, um, that's the way it would have to work. The CTO also explained to me that they're actively working on a system to distinguish between legit and malicious traffic during an attack, uh, which you might be surprised to learn that it's not that easy to distinguish. This was something that occurred with the Dyn attack uh, last year was that there was a tremendous amount of legitimate DNS traffic from legitimate servers trying to refresh their caches. And that was very difficult to tell whether or not it was malicious or not because it's distributed just like the malicious attackers were. There were some techniques uh, called DNS Anycast uh, as well as some application layer uh, defenses uh, using materials from something called OWASP, O-W-A-S-P. And this is just this enormous open source project that's devoted to helping defend against attacks at the software layer. That's a different sort of defense from a network attack. In fact, it's kind of interesting to see the application developer's approach. Um, a good example is uh, the node software. That's going to be written as sort of a firewall, which will just simply drop the packets from any attackers that have proven to be malicious. So this is done purely with software, not 
with a hardware device that's devoted to security, such as a firewall device that we're familiar with, just lines of code to be able to manipulate that traffic and route that traffic. So all in all, a good white paper, pretty solid and a good balance between business and technology. The roadmap. Uh, the roadmap consists of several phases. Phase one will end around March of 2018, and in that period we should see the second version of the smart contract library, as well as the second version of the client and node pool software. Right now, those items exist on GitHub, and even in the code comments, they admit that there's some missing items that will be developed after the sale. Uh, when, of course, they have a little bit more time and certainly some more money. A good example is the ability to have more control over the node software. So like when you download it and you're running a node, you need to have a little bit more control over when it runs and what conditions and so forth. The other thing they want to have is uh, fully encrypted communications completely uh, by the uh, end of March 2018. Phase two takes us through August of 2018. And in that stage, we'll see the finalization of the network so that it's commercially viable on a, on a larger scale. And by large scale, what we're talking about is the ability to protect hundreds or maybe thousands of websites. Um, as well, we'll see the scalability of node pools, which will allow more sites to be protected. And that's going to be very important because Akamai and Cloudflare and some of these other large players have hundreds, possibly thousands of servers in data centers around the world. And so that is going to be absolutely required to have robust pools of nodes which are forming together in order to provide these services. Uh, one thing I thought was interesting is that in this phase we're going to see the removable of any traces of centralization. And I understand why it would take that long to get there, because if you think about it, there's a little bit of a chicken and egg issue here when you're building such a distributed network. What I mean is that you need to have the full functions of the network running before you're going to get people to join it to build the full network. So those full functions come at a cost of centralization in the beginning because you have the ability to run the full stack of what you're developing from a single or from a few servers. And then as more nodes join, then you're going to be able to ease off of that centralization and then you're going to be able to go fully decentralized. It's good to see in a white paper, personally, that this is actually acknowledged and planned for. You don't see that very often. What you usually see in white papers is all kinds of highfalutin, high-blown rhetoric about decentralization without the acknowledgement that when you're building something, there has to be a little bit of centralization in the beginning. The final phase uh, is December of 2018. And that's a little bit more than a year from now, but probably about a year after the token sale is completely finished. Uh, and that's when they plan to release an open source network builder for closed systems. I, th I find that pretty interesting because it would allow private networks to take advantage of the content delivery aspects of the service, and would just pretty much allow companies to download the software and start using it privately. Of course, they, the token would power it, so they would still be using the token, but it could be used in a, in a more closed system. I think that's very interesting. They also plan multi-pooled support for companies that will pay for an added layer of protection like that. 
What's interesting to me is that some of these features are tied to funding goals. I'm not going to go through the whole list of funding goals and enumerate them here. Uh, you can review that yourself with the white paper. Just go to gladius.io. It's good to see, though, that the lowest level of funding, which I think is $4 million, uh, we see that the fundamentals of the service, which is, in fact, the content delivery network, distributed denial of service, defense, and load balancing is in place. Let's talk about the token sale. Uh, the name of the token, of course, is Gladius. It has a symbol of GLA. What's interesting about this particular sale is that the sale was restructured, mainly around the timing of it. Uh, there was an extension. Uh, and the extension itself actually had more favorable terms than the prior one. And in a series of articles on Medium, it was explained that the token presale was extended to November 23rd of this year. And that represents a three-week extension. And then the public sale begins on November 24th, and then it ends on December 30th of this year. In the pre-sale, there's a cap of 28,333 Ether, which right now represents about $8 million. There's a sliding scale of bonus pricing for the token based on the number of tokens purchased by the contributor. Now, you can find all this out on medium.com. I'll provide a link on ICO41.com to it, but I'll explain that starting with 1 Ether to 16, there's a 20% bonus, which comes in at 600 GLA per Ether. And if you contribute more than 335 at the other end of that scale, there's a 40% discount. So there's a big reward there for big participants. And what's interesting about this pre-sale, uh, which I actually like a lot, is the vesting period. This, of course, is to discourage pumping and dumping of the tokens. Now, there's no vesting period for small contributions like 1 Ether up to 16, but if you contribute 335 more, there's a two-month vesting period, and there's a sliding scale backward against that. Let's talk about SEC compliance. For me, just like last week, uh, which was another sort of IT-based, technology-based ICO, I see this as an extremely utilitarian token. I can't really find anything that the SEC could sink their teeth into on this one. There doesn't seem to be any evidence of promotion of the token as an asset that represents equity. There's no promise of a return on any kind of investment. The token is used to power the network and to incentivize small actors to join and distribute both the resources and, of course, the revenue that goes along with using the token. So from my perspective, this appears to be a purely utilitarian token. And I would be personally surprised if this ICO ran afoul of the SEC in the future, given the types of ICOs that they've been targeting lately. Let's talk about the reaction from the community. The team has done a really good job here uh, with the community overall. Uh, for instance, there's over 2,000 members on the Telegram channel. Their Bitcoin talk announcement post has 11 pages of comments, and almost all of those comments are positive and they seem sincere from a lot of uh, senior members. Just a few detractions, and the few concerns were expressed about things like the age of the founders. Those questions and those uh, sort of concerns were answered, I think, pretty well. Uh, in fact, uh, I liked, actually like some of the answers from the community, not even from the team, which said things like, what, you want the developers to be 100 years old? How are 100-year-old developers going to stay up all night coding? You know, jokes like that. I mean, 
I didn't see very much evidence of a tremendous amount of negativity. And those questions that were sincere and, uh, you know, critical and skeptical were, were answered, I think, pretty well. In response to that specific question about the age, the founders themselves responded with the fact that they're actually surrounding themselves with older and perhaps wiser people. And if you uh, take a look at the Telegram channel uh, and also look at the team website and look at the LinkedIn profiles, you'll see that they, they have done just that. Did a pretty good job over at Reddit. Uh, I'll tell you, my opinion is uh, Reddit is one of the most unforgiving channels. In fact, I'm just going to say that I think it's one of the most useless forums these days. Uh, in my opinion, it's become a sort of depressing spiral of trolling and then this draconian catch-22 rule system to prevent the trolling, which is supposed to filter out the malicious trolls, but it also filters out the thoughtful users who maybe don't have the right amount of post-karma. Anyway, certainly we're going to continue to use Reddit as a partial voice for the community, but uh, I'm, I'm not planning to count it nearly as much as we will compared to something like Bitcoin Talk, which is much more... Um, I guess you could say egalitarian or somehow better run. I'm not sure. Nevertheless, though, over at Reddit, the team responded, uh, I think, very well to uh, a multi-bulleted post, which brought up a whole range of concerns. And I think they answered them pretty well. Uh, the Telegram channel, with its 2,100 members or so, is really where the action is on this ICO. The team uh, managed to weather pretty well uh, what you might call a minor storm when they made the decision to postpone the pre-sale of the ICO for three weeks, or rather I should say extend the pre-sale and postpone the public sale of the ICO for three weeks. If you remember something not quite the same, but there was a change made on one of the earlier uh, ICOs we, we talked about, Gimli. And there was a storm that happened there. There's nothing like that here. Really, there was, by and large, most of the people understood the reasons. Uh, and there was a couple of people who, you know, were very, very critical. But, um, I mean, even some of them came around. Uh, I'll explain it. The primary reason that they made a the decision to extend the pre-sale and postpone the public sale was strategic and it has everything to do with the upcoming segregated witness version two that's coming up for bitcoin i mentioned this very briefly at the very very end of last week's podcast just to go take a look at it this is a huge event it's it's a major fork it's causing the price of bitcoin to just scream through the roof right now um hardly anybody is letting go of their bitcoins it's causing obviously um a huge spike. I mean, we're up at $7,400, I think, for a Bitcoin uh, last time I checked a few hours ago. Uh, nobody's going to let go of their Bitcoins until after the fork. So as a result of that, and that fork happens, I think, November 20th. As a result, these next few weeks are absolutely the worst time you could possibly launch an initial coin offering or a token sale. So the founders actually did a very wise thing in postponing this. Now, they took a little bit of flack, but 95%, 98% of the people who responded on the Telegram channel understood the decision and agreed with it. In terms of uh, the community interaction, the, I found the team to be very responsive. I was able to get all my questions answered last minute, like I usually am, 
uh, today by the CTO. Um, I'm way late on my analysis, and I'm asking these questions at the very last hour. I'm going to go ahead and post the full Q&A on the website on ICO41 like I did last week. Uh, One of the things where the team might have done a better job is to have the people manning the bounty conversation over on Bitcoin Talk every bit as available and responsive as the people on the Telegram channel. Now, the team wisely insisted that bounty questions be reserved for Bitcoin Talk, which is where they should be, mainly because that's a whole different level of conversation. And there's a whole volume of conversation with respect to that. What we find here, and we've talked about this before on this podcast, but the people who are interested in bounty are generally a demanding lot. And uh, if there's anywhere you need to answer immediately, it's wherever you're responding to bounty questions. Uh, So I think that that would have been uh, a little bit better if they had people just responding immediately to all these bounty questions. Uh, I actually personally think that the whole concept of the bounty for these ICOs is definitely a double-edged sword. I'm certain that it helps in the long run, and I'm certain that it helps uh, with respect to getting the word out. But you you have to deal with a lot of people whose motivations are not what I would say precisely the well-being and success of your project. A little bit of details about bounty in general. In this case, it was seven bitcoins uh, for all the bounty participants, in which as of a few hours ago, that means around a little over $42,000, $43,000. And I, I guess we really need to understand that for people around the world, this is something definitely worth clamoring for, definitely worth carving up, and definitely worth getting a piece of, no matter how small a slice of that that you're going to end up getting. Uh, but still, it's, um, I don't envy these folks that have to uh, sort of man these channels uh, with respect to bounty. All in all, I'm going to say that uh, from what I observed and read, and I do extensive reading of, uh, of all of the channels, I'd say it was uh, by and large a very positive reaction from the community. Let's talk about business viability. One of the things that stands out for me with this ICO in terms of business viability is the actual service that the platform is going to provide and also the competition that is currently providing those services. So as an example, there are other ICOs. Uh, For instance, the ones that uh, seek to decentralize large service providers like Amazon and Microsoft Azure for cloud-based file storage. I'm talking specifically about SIA and StoreJ. There's some many others as well. But the problem there is that cloud storage of files is practically free now. I mean, I think my Amazon Prime membership comes with free, unlimited image storage. As long as you have JPEGs uh, and any kind of image file, it's pretty much free and unlimited. And even even the small players, which you'd expect to be more expensive, like so-called boutique um, offerings like iDrive, they cost $75 a year for a terabyte of storage. Now, with those kinds of prices, free and up to, at the most, maybe 75 bucks a year, the people who are running storage nodes on the blockchain are having a hard time making it worth their while because they're trying to compete with something that's so cheap. The services that are provided by the competition in this area, content delivery networks, are very, very expensive. So in terms of viability, the concept itself just 
in terms of that, it's quite viable in my opinion. Now, we always talk about gotchas. And the one thing that I can see is that this is going to take a while. And I don't just mean it's going to take a while to build. I mean, it's going to take a while to adopt. To get to the level at which a distributed network will reach the level at which it can compete against something like Akamai and Cloudflare, there's going to be a very, very high level of adoption. There needs to be a lot of nodes to keep up with the likes of those services. As website owners begin to see the benefit of cached content, though, and I'm talking about smaller websites, um, I think that this will take on, it'll catch on. It'll, it'll, it might be slow, but it'll certainly catch on because what it's really doing is that it's making it possible for companies that cannot otherwise support or afford these services to actually get that service for them. And the other thing that I noticed, uh, which is which is a good thing, is that apparently um, there is not a lot of footprint for content delivery in Asia, especially in China. But see, there's nothing to stop Asian markets from downloading this, this open source software and running a node. So instantly, because there's no barrier to entry in terms of that, Whereas it might be difficult for Akamai and Cloudflare and some other ones to get servers into large data centers in China and other places, there's not really any difficulty in deploying this network in places where those networks cannot support the content delivery network. So that's very interesting to me. For me, the final takeaway is this. It's a solid idea. It's much needed, not just for technical people, but for anybody who's consuming the internet. It is very egalitarian in the sense that it it speaks to the spirit of uh, what blockchain can do such that it can chip away at some of the massive companies that are providing service, just a few of them. And the team itself, to me, seems solid. Uh, There's an actual set of code that is available now, and that's three weeks before their uh, public sale. In my opinion, all in all, this is one that is absolutely worth looking into and investigating carefully. Now, I'm very happy to say this week that we have time to go back in time to Namecoin. Namecoin was the very first fork of Bitcoin, and thus it was the very first altcoin. Namecoin is this interesting idea that sort of corresponds with what we've been talking about today, wherein it might be possible to provide a different blockchain-based naming system, a a type of domain name system, and registrar. What's great about that is that you can register a domain name for something like six cents, literally, is what it costs now, purely using software. You can even go to some .bit registrars and pick up a name for the a little bit more than that, and then it renews every six months. You can do it with just code by downloading the code, of course, and and executing a few commands and paying in a very small amount of Namecoin. And the fact that the project is still alive is very cheering. Now, to be clear, unfortunately, it has not taken over the .com uh, or .net or any of the spaces except for the high top-level domains except for bit.bit. I'm just fascinated by this project because it's, it's the original fork from Bitcoin. 
still alive, still maintained by a group of passionate people, and still virtually free. And of course, the currency trades on most exchanges and has value. So uh, I'd like to encourage you to go check out Namecoin and see for yourself that there is viability in blockchain. There are projects that actually have a life past just a few months after the ICO. There was no such thing as an ICO back then. And yet here it is, still now, an alternative currency uh, using something kind of interesting called merged mining, which is something for you to look up. Take a look at that. Uh, Still active, still being developed, and still working after all this time. So that's it for this week. Thanks very much for listening. We'll see you next week.